This is a Main Hustle Media Podcast. Hello and welcome to the show. My name is Jackie O and you're listening to Militantly Mixed. Yo, this is Rashani from the Single Simulcast. And when I'm not making you laugh or making up parody songs, I'm kicking back. Listening to Militantly Mixed. Grew up in this place full of small town graves, working all day to escape reality. I thought I was the one to be oppressed by none as I belong to. on a stormy sea Sometimes we're the ones that suffer from the guns you think should work Are they harmless words? They are not harmless
Hey y'all, welcome to Militantly Mixed, the podcast about race and identity from the mixed race perspective. I am your host, Charmaine, aka Mixed Girl Maine, the busiest mixed race bisexual polyamorous atheist comic book nerd cat mom podcaster in this podcasting game. And I am back. It's still a rough time, but I'm getting things together bit by bit. Hopefully I can get back to a normal schedule soon. But as y'all know, it's been a, a rough couple of months. Um, and I'm back into grieving again, and I'm trying to keep my head up and act normal, but, um, yeah, dang, every time, every time I try to turn a corner, uh, something happens, and, and I'm trying to keep my spirits up, but it's tough. It's, it's, uh, it is tough, but I don't want to dwell on anything. Uh, I do have an update on the computer situation. I have turned it in, hopefully, to try to get a trade-in value. It takes about three weeks to find out if anything is salvageable. And they'll give me, hopefully, a credit back, which I can add to what y'all have donated so far so I can replace my laptop, hopefully, sooner rather than later. It's still possible it won't be salvageable at all and I won't get anything, in which case I will continue to just have to save. But what I did do was I went out and got myself a little iPad so that I can do some of this work remotely. Uh, when I was traveling the last two weeks, I didn't have a laptop with me and it was really hard to get any work done on my downtime. And since I was traveling, there were times when I just didn't have anything to do. <laughs> and it would have been nice to be able to edit a show or do some show art or do some social media work. Uh, and I was gonna get one anyway before I destroyed my laptop so that I could use it as a soundboard so I can kind of change some of the, the things that I do on the show. So at least I have it now for when I get my laptop, but in the meantime, at least it's something I can travel with. And it's it's actually really useful for a lot of the work that I have to do. The only thing I can't really do on it is edit, and that is because I use a specific software that I've paid for separately. I don't use any of the free softwares for editing because I don't really like their interfaces. But what I use is Adobe Audition. It's not cheap. I pay for it. <laughs> or at least with y'all's support, I pay for it. Uh, my Patreon sponsors. And so that's why I'm going to continue to edit on my old ass iMac, but I'll be able to get a lot of the other stuff done with my iMac or with my iPad when I'm not at home. So that's all positive. Um, and hopefully I will be able to get that like laptop soon so I can do my full functionality again on a, on a more modern system. All right. I have a really great interview today and I don't want to cut any of it short. Um, so it's about a 52 minute one and I know my episodes are usually about an hour and 15 minutes. So I'm going to have to race through some of these announcements for this intro and then and also include the song that you just heard and a song hopefully at the end if I have enough time. And so here we go. I just don't want the episode to to be like an hour and a half or an hour and 45 because I know that y'all uh, kind of stop listening after that amount of time. So, uh, but before we begin, I do want to acknowledge that Militantly Mix is recorded on the ancestral lands of the Chumash and the Tongva people. And I am currently residing in West LA. Uh, my guest this week was calling in also from the ancestral lands of the Chumash people, but also the, and I hope I pronounce this correctly, Shumuwich and the Barbaranos people. I am going to begin incorporating this into the show. I've done it before, but I don't want it to drop off as a habit because I do think it is important to acknowledge the stolen lands from the indigenous people here where I reside and record the show from. And if my guests are on ancestral lands, I will acknowledge that as well. Um, it's just something that I 
I've witnessed recently in events and, and on other shows and in books that I've read and things like that, I, I do believe it has value to acknowledge the past and um, make people think about it because we easily don't think about what happened before we got here. So I'd like to incorporate that in the show going forward. I hope y'all appreciate that as well. Uh, so the song you heard at the top of the show was by my guest today, Tiffany Lytle. She is a Cambodian-American singer, songwriter, and educator of Asian-American studies. Uh, She is trained in Cambodian classical dance, as well as other dance styles. And she, her debut EP is called Cambodian Child. And you just heard the track. And I I wrote myself out of pronunciation key. So Tiffany, I hope I said this correctly. I I listened to it over and over again to try to get it right. Kiyom Ko Khmai. And it translates into, I am a Cambodian child. And as you heard, it is about her mixed race experience as a multiracial Cambodian and American person. And um, this was such a great, such a great interview. Uh, We were introduced to each other from a mutual friend. And I just think Tiffany is amazing. I really do hope to have her back because we got so caught up on some of the other topics that we had to talk about that we never even got around to her music. I'm just sharing her music because I want to. And hopefully when I get her back, we can actually talk about how she uses her music to investigate her heritage and share her mixed race heritage with people. But we didn't quite get into that uh, on this interview because we had so many other things to talk about. Tiffany is an amazing guest and I do hope you check out the show notes after you're listening to the show so you can follow her on her Instagram, get her EP, support mixed race people out there doing things. Yes, I hope all that happens. Uh, Got a bit of a hit, lost a a big chunk of the Patreon sponsorship. And part of that I'm sure has to do with the slowing down of the schedule and and not being able to deliver at my normal pace, uh, which I apologize for. Um, I do have some rewards that I'm a little bit behind in getting out. Um, I'm still waiting for some people to get back to me on their t-shirt sizes so that I can send them their t-shirts. But I got some pins for some of y'all and some handwritten postcards coming your way. I am a bit, little bit behind on that. And I'm supposed to also update some of the rewards, but I've been behind on that as well. So we did take a bit of a hit. Um, so I do still want to try to hit that 500 dollars a month but at this point uh, we got to go back to trying to hit the 300 dollars a month and if you can or are interested in supporting the show you can go to patreon.com slash militantly mixed and you can sponsor as low as a dollar to as high as anything you wish uh, there's different reward levels depending on where you sponsor or you can just sponsor without rewards it's entirely up to you um, and that is a monthly sponsorship sponsorship If you don't wish or cannot sponsor on a monthly basis, but you do want to contribute to the show, you can go to paypal.me slash militantlymix and sponsor the show that way. All of the money goes into the same Militantly Mix bank account and goes back into the show. That covers my editing software. It covers, well, soon, hopefully, it'll cover my replacement computer, my website, hosting fees, email, things like that. It also helps with the swag that is uh, available for sale or for conventions. And it um, when, I, when there is a little bit extra, I put that into advertising the show to try to get more ears on it. So if you want to support the show, two ways, patreon.com and PayPal. Uh, or you can go to our shop on Etsy. Uh, all of these links are in the show notes. Etsy is where you can buy the pins, the stickers, and the... Um, 
buttons. Uh, I think I should add the postcards on there soon. I haven't done that, but I think I will. Um, and if you want the t-shirts, you can go to teespring.com and just search for Militilly Mix and all of the t-shirts are there as well. And all of the proceeds that come from those purchases go back into the show. Okay, so that's that. I feel like there was something else major. Oh, <laughs> there is something else major. I talked about it last week, but I just want, and I'll talk about it every week until it happens. Uh, I will be speaking at the Mixed Race Heritage Conference at UCLA on May 2nd. Uh, the schedule will come out a little bit later. When more details come out, I will share that and post that on social media as well. But if you're going to be in the Los Angeles area, please consider coming to the Mixed Race Heritage Conference at UCLA. It is on May 2nd, which is also a free comic book day. So in the morning, I will be at the Pulp Fiction Comics, <laughs> the store that I work at part-time, handling the huge international event, which is Free Comic Books Day. And then halfway through that event, I'm going to hit the pause button, leave, and get myself ready to go present at the Mixed Race Heritage Conference. It's going to be a huge, gigantic day for me. And both things are things I'm very excited about. So I do hope that if you are able to come out and support all of the speakers that will be at the Mixed Race Heritage Conference at UCLA that you can, um, but also come out and support your girl. I have not gotten permission for this yet, so I'm not going to mention it. But when I was at an event last week, a listener swung by to say hi to me just because they listened to the show and heard me announce that I was going to be at this particular event. And I was so overwhelmed and freaking out and trying to act like I was cool. But really, I was like freaking out inside that someone drove to come and see me at an event. I was just like, I don't even know how that's possible. It's amazing. Um, but I haven't asked permission to share the photo or anything yet. So I'm not going to out the person. But I'm so appreciative that that happened. It made me feel all kind of special. My co-host on the other show was like, pitching me like you got a listener come and see you and stuff so it was great and awesome and I hope that in any of my future events if you are able to come out and see me and meet me um, I want to meet you and it I, I will say that it was awesome <laughs> it was awesome to have that experience so um, given how difficult things have been for me lately too to have a boost like that was really meaningful so you know who you are I'm sure you're hearing me be a goober but I appreciate you, and um, hopefully I can share that picture with you all soon, too. All right, I think that's enough. Uh, man, things have been tough. This has been a tough couple months, but I have had these little rays of sunshine, so I'm very appreciative of y'all. The continued messages, the really thoughtful messages, like I feel like you must have really been getting to know me over the course of this show, because some of y'all have sent me messages that are like you really understand me. Some people are saying, you know, take a break. You sound like everything's pretty heavy for you. Take a break. We'll still be here. And then I have other people that are just like, if doing the show is how you get your medicine, keep doing the show, but slow down, you know, a little bit so that you can take a breath, but we'll be here for you either way. So it feels like, you know, y'all understand my, you know, my mental health needs and, and the way I process things. And it's really meaningful. Whew, it's really meaningful to me that that you all do show that you care that way. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you, everybody, for sticking with me and being supportive of all my things. <laughs> I guess all of my things and um, and this show. But before we go too long, because, you know, I could talk for hours, uh, I would like to move it on over to 
my guest this week, again, Tiffany Lytle. You're just going to love this interview, this discussion. It was so wonderful. I can't wait to have her back. I can't wait to have her back and, and get to get into her music a little bit more as well. Um, but join me, please join me in welcoming Tiffany Lytle to the Militantly Mixed family. We are back, and uh, this is, I guess, kind of take two because we were supposed to talk last week, and my travel situation was all janky. But I'm very excited to have you join this show. Why don't you introduce yourself to everybody and tell them why we're here? Yeah, so hi, everyone. My name is Tiffany Lytle, and I am a mixed-race Cambodian-American and white... um, academic and recording artist um, and singer. And I was a professional dancer too in my past. So (laughs) I think performing artists kind of covers the gamut for me. Um, And a lot of my work is scholarly informed because I am currently working on my PhD in theater, dance and performance studies at UC Santa Barbara. And I did my master's in um, Asian American studies at UCLA. So yeah, that's that's me. Awesome. Well, I'm really excited that we get the chance to talk. And we the reason why we even get connected is because of one of my, and Morgan, forgive me for saying it this way, one of my favorite white women. <laughs> <laughs> yep. <laughs> so um, my friend Morgan. <laughs> she knows. She knows. She knows. Uh, my friend Morgan, we worked together a few years back on a very notable competition cooking show. Uh, we were both in the uh, production office for this show and um, bonded over that um, time period and have stayed in touch and everything like that. And every now and then we'll reach out and talk to each other about whatever kind of things are going on. And a couple of times in the last year or so, she's she's reached out to me saying, like, I know what you're doing with your show and everything. Can we talk a little bit about this? this issue and that issue and stuff and then she hooked us up because she's like why don't you two know each other and i'm glad that she we're pretty much in line on a lot of things why don't we talk a little bit about what's happening for the grad students right now uc wide i guess yeah so uc wide um and i'm gonna speak from what's happening on my campus at uc santa barbara um, you see why we, the TAs, the, the teaching, um, the graduate students who are teaching assistants, we are on a full strike. And this strike is in solidarity with UC Santa Cruz students who have been striking for living wages since last quarter. And uh, they have been, fa- they have been met with a lot of Uh, brutality, both from the administration and from police. And so in solidarity with them, we've all gone on strike. And not only are we striking in solidarity with UC Santa Cruz to protest the egregious conditions that not only they have to work in, but that they as protesters who are exercising their right to speak have been, um, and to free speech, have been, they've been met with so much violence and so much, um, 
problematic institutionalized hate that we're all rising up um, in solidarity, but we're also fighting for our own cost of living adjustment. So COLA is going to be the slang that everyone hears left and right about, you know, this strike. And COLA just stands for cost of living adjustment. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I can speak to my own situation. I live in Santa Barbara where I have to go to school. Prior to this, I was um, an adjunct lecturer at UC Santa Barbara and I commuted from Los Angeles, which Ooh. is a 98 mile drive one way, <laughs> you know? That's one way. And, you know, living in L.A. in a great situation where I was rent controlled, but I worked four jobs to get through my master's program and just to live. Uh Um, Generally, you know, uh, I had to take this job to commute up to Santa Barbara because it was uh, one of the few opportunities that I would have to uh, work in the field that I am training for and that Mm -hmm. I'm trained for. Um, Not only that, but I heard such great things about the faculty and the student body that I really wanted to make sure that my voice was a part of that as well. Um, And in my time here, I decided to apply to a PhD program and I got in at UC Santa Barbara and that's why I relocated. Mm -hmm. Uh, What I didn't know was that when, you know, while I was shopping, I, I found out that um studio apartments go for two thousand dollars yeah and if you want a one bedroom you know it's going to be more than that and if you want to share a room you can do that but as someone that's almost 30 years old I think a little bit ridiculous um and you know my I got very lucky my apartment's wonderful and I one of the very few lucky people that like built relationships in order to find good places here. Mm -hmm. And I could only do that because I was teaching um, up here for a while. So I was commuting and like meeting people and seeing places actively for like six months. Right. And then, um, you know, I found this awesome place, but it's still $1,700 a month with no utilities included. Yeah. And I'm paid $2,100 a month. Uh, see, that's the thing. So my husband is uh, an adjunct professor, and uh, and the thing is, he he went through to get his PhD, but burnt out after six years, and so he got out with his master's. Like he basically should have gotten out with like three masters, but you know he got out with yeah. the master's. So he's been an adjunct for the last basically ten years, and you know we go from place to place. We lived in. Austin, Texas, and Bridgewater, Massachusetts, and Porterville, California, and then we ended up here. He was teaching at Santa Monica, and he hasn't been let go, but he hasn't been given classes this semester. And right, you know, no one has health insurance, and nobody you know, like there's all of these problems that they have, and then they're expected to work full or more than full time, or join committees so that they can network enough to to get considered for a full time. And at the end of the day that's doesn't that doesn't happen like it's just the adjunct hustle is not for the faint of heart it's not (laughs) because you're highly educated lower paid than people who can come out of high school and get a trade job and like work in the career you know they'll be higher paid so like my husband and I are two people with master's degrees that I ended up working in in um tech and in 
executive positions instead of film because I wasn't making any money in film and he wasn't making any money as an adjunct. And so I'm the one who took the hit, like to not follow my dreams. Yeah. (laughs) You know, so he's following his dreams, but on an adjunct rotation. And that's like, there's a lot less control of your career and what you get to do. And then on top of it, if you're not even able to live, which is what we're facing here in, in LA as well. But what I was really upset about in hearing about what's going on with the the UC wide protests is it starting in Santa Cruz. Santa Cruz is where I got my bachelor's. And I will refer to this as Angela Davis's UC Santa Cruz. How the hell are they the ones who started Mm -hmm. treating people so poorly and sticking the police on them? And this is Santa Cruz. Like, if you're not familiar with California or you're not familiar with Santa Cruz in particular, listeners santa cruz is where all the old hippies from the 60s who ended up getting rich later in life moved to be able to (laughs) be half hippie still but rich like it's the richer hippie place and yeah and so for them to be the people who are now like well it shows you this neoliberal mindset of the administration in the academy Mm mm-hmm You know, and I think that we need to, as, you know, as academics, we need to be aware of this neoliberal mindset and we need to rise up against it because it does go against a lot of the things that we're attempting to uncover as scholars, right? Mm -hmm. Especially as scholars in the humanities or whatever else. But, you know, my my thing is a lot of us are going to pursue these higher degrees because we hope that our research can help change the world. Right. You know, so my focus is on Cambodian American communities and performance. And I'm hoping that through um, highlighting different Cambodian American performers and through talking about the stories of the Cambodian American community and that, and through creating performance as well, that I'm able to bridge these kinds of, uh, these kinds of gaps of knowledge that mm-hmm. happen in the American consciousness about people of color, especially for me, you know, being Southeast Asian, I never saw any representation of any kind Mm-mm. in the media. And I, and the only representation in performance that I ever saw was um, Cambodians performing Cambodian classical dance or Cambodian court dance. And oh, so you did get to see that growing up? I saw it through like community performances, this like image of the Apsara, which is a Cambodian like celestial dancer. That image is very closely linked to Cambodian and Cambodian diasporic identity. Okay. Especially post. Uh, the 1975 to 1979 genocide, Mm -hmm. you know? So when diasporic communities came to the U S the, this image becomes extremely important in connecting Cambodians abroad to ideas and memories of homeland. Mm -hmm. Right. So performance thus becomes extremely um, important in Cambodian American communities that are trying to, after being displaced violently, you know, trying to find identity. Um, Mm -hmm. 
you know, and so I saw this image and I thought, wow, I should do Cambodian classical dance, <laughs> you know? Um, and it wasn't exactly like that. It was, you know, my, my discovery of Cambodian classical dance was something that happened with my parents kind of by chance. Mm. But when I saw these representations, like it definitely, it definitely helped fuel like why I was performing and why I did Cambodian classical dance. I was like, oh, see, the Apsara is synonymous with Cambodian culture. Mm -hmm. So I need to be like that. And any of us that are mixed race and needing to have some form of access to our cultures just so that we can feel like a valid member of the community, dance, food, language, these are kind of the probably easier access things that we can get here in the States as long as there's a community present. Right. And I was very lucky to have grown up, you know, uh, right next to the one of the largest Cambodian American communities in the United States. I grew up in San Pedro, California, which is just over the bridge from Long Beach, California. Where and I spent, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and I, and I spent most of my, you know, weekends, the entire weekends, hours and hours in Long Beach. So I consider that to be like my second home. Right. And you know, like you see, you look left and right and there's these, in every Cambodian American household, there's a, two paintings, one of the Apsara mm-hmm. <laughs> and then one of like Angkor Wat. <laughs> mm. Maybe the Cambodian countryside if, if you're, you know, if you're lucky, you really space <laughs> on the wall. And they're all like huge and super colorful. But everybody's always got these images, you know, circulating. So for mm. me, that meant like, doing Cambodian classical dance was the um was how I needed to perform identity and being a white passing or at least non-Cambodian passing person I felt a really really huge obligation to uh to get good at Cambodian classical dance or to continue practicing it and I think it was, it's that representation and its linkage to Cambodian and Cambodian American identity um, paired with knowing the stories of my mother's trials and tribulations through the Cambodian genocide mm. that made me continue to pursue performance and Cam- Cambodian classical dance specifically, uh, you know, through my 20s. Right. Let's go back real fast to talk about you. You said as a white presenting and or non necessarily obviously Cambodian presenting mixed woman. This is something that fascinates me, and people will see a photo, so they'll get a chance to to check it out. Where I see someone who's clearly of Asian descent, and I'm going to assume mixed Asian descent, and then it's a question of finding out or in conversation if it becomes obvious or something like that, right? Mm-hmm. Um, in your case, though, you are perceived, are you perceived as white, non-white? You know what I mean? Like, um, yeah, can't figure out so, what you are, so you're kind of white. I mean, I grew up in, you know, in LA, right? So mm-hmm. <laughs> the first thing people jump to is is that I'm Mexican. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, I can be, I'm perceived all kinds of things all the time. I, as a child, would be on stage during Khmer New Year doing Cambodian classical dance 
and like five feet away would be the audience and you'd hear some grandma yelling really into really loud for some reason um she'd be like what is that mexican girl doing on stage (laughs) oh no (laughs) right and she'd say it in Khmer, like i don't understand it right or or they'd ask like who's that american girl and american is like slang for white yes you know so they'd be like like what what is she doing on stage this american girl they just mean this white girl what is she doing and they'd ask in Khmer, like why is it that she can dance so well you know um and and so from a young age you know i was confronted with my difference Mm -hmm. uh because i participated in cambodian classical dance and so my whole life, I feel like I've just faced many, many, many authenticity checks. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's a good way of saying it. Authenticity yeah. checks. I might oh, I get that. authenticity <laughs> checked. Yeah, no, please use it. I get authenticity checked to today, like yeah. constantly, right? I was wearing my Raised by Refugees shirt. Mm-hmm. In on campus once, and somebody stopped me and was like, "Wait, what are you?" <laughs> of course, which refugees? Could you clarify which <laughs> refugees, please? <laughs> like, you know, I'll, I teach in the Asian American Studies department, and I do have to say, like, generally the students are really lovely, but I feel the obligation to start off, and it, this is Hapa people problems. You, are right. you familiar with the term Hapa? Yeah. No, I've I've always felt the need to uh, tell my students right off the bat that I am Asian American identifying, and that I am Cambodian American, and I feel like um, it's a it's a Hapa person problem. Like I'm constantly having to feel like I either need to uh, assert my Cambodianness in ways mm-hmm. that maybe don't always feel fully genuine, you know. But at mm-hmm. the same time, I need to like, I have this need to let people know, like, hey, don't pull your, you know, white people shenanigans out. There's a person right. of color in your presence. <laughs> yeah. So the the Hapa thing is weird, I think, to me because I I forever identified it with. Um, so I grew up in, I was born in 77. So I grew up going to Hawaii in the 80s where Hapa was mostly used for um, like maybe a Hawaiian and Japanese mixed person. And mm-hmm. then you had your Hapa Haoles, which were, that's when you can mm-hmm. say some kind of Asian and, and white or whatever. So um, now that the term has been taken off a little bit more, and I think it's pretty present here in California. I know it's yeah. also used a lot in Canada. Um as well and uh i i just think that it's a strange it's one of those things of where like i guess it's also about the term asian because i don't often use the term asian unless i am around other asians that aren't japanese you know Mm -hmm. i'll usually declare my japanese-ness so that they can tell me that i'm not japanese and i have to deal with my authenticity check yeah Um, you know and asians are weird like we we do tend to other ourselves you know we we do we do it quite a lot and so this the fact that this term even exists and even is used where there was a patch of asians somewhere who decided to acknowledge asian otherness i'm really well, curious I mean, how this so ends up thinking being, about so. thinking about um that term in the context of hawaii we definitely have to 
highlight and bring up all of the different waves of immigration and of imperialism and of empire that have touched those shores. And so that's why, you know, the distinctions there are maybe different than how we use it uh, here in the States as this kind of like, I I personally use it as almost an all encapsulating term for mixed race generally. And that's only because I look for, um, I'm looking for a kind of slang that's kind of catchy that unites us all, right? But that you know, isn't people... like uh, used for animals or like exactly. mud or that's not you know, used in things. yeah. Um, but also, you know, hapa's used here in the states per you know if you check out uh, the Hapa project by Kip Fulbeck, mm-hmm. which is this incredible like photography project that. Um, you know, ha- asks the the people that he's photographing, you know, like, what is Hoppe? And then, you know, they, they'll they write their own answer. And then their answer, their written answer is juxtaposed to their uh, portrait. And, you know, that, that project has some academic text and writing within the book that talks about this kind of reclamation of the term because it was a derogatory term. Um, and right. it, it talks about that and how that's being used to uh, describe more mixed a- of Asian descent and other, mm-hmm. um, you know, and I kind of like casually use it a lot to describe just mixed race people generally. generally. So yeah. that's that's an interesting way of thinking about it, because I so I am also from because of the time period I'm born. I am now, as a middle-aged 42-year-old woman, I am now being confronted with words that were used as derogatory now being reclaimed. Yeah. And 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 so Lahapa being one of them. So yeah, I do kind of think of it as a negative, but I've been embracing it because I know my people have been embracing it. So I'm like, okay, I'm going to get used to this. Right. Um, but we have to know why we're embracing it too. Right. Like we have to know the history of it before we can use it. And that's why I really, really advocate and believe in people getting more education about these kinds of histories of multiraciality. And and we need more of this scholarship in academia generally, but we also need more of these stories out and these histories out in um, the general, you know, consciousness of Asian America. Right, because there is sometimes, in a lot of cases, there is trauma in mixedness, especially when we come from countries that have been colonialized or multiple conquerings. Um, You know, like a lot of South Asia, there has been um, other Asian oppressors, there have been white oppressors, other European oppressors. You know, there's there's this constant throughout all of Asia, but particularly South Asia, um, Southeast Asia, there is this flux of the Dutch and then the Spaniards and then yeah. the, the British and, you right. know, and, on and the, flip the Japanese side of, did it too. They went through all of the countries and decided right. to conquer too. I mean, imperialism is definitely rampant, but also on the flip side of, of that, you know, I teach a, an upper division um, Asian American pop culture class. And so when I get to my like section where I'm thinking about mixed race performers, you know, I also want to point out that, Mixed race people have always been um, projected in pop culture to be these like hopeless, like hopeless, trauma ridden, 
um, characters. Mm -hmm. And we want to point out, too, that not everybody is, you know, an Amerasian, you know, not everybody is a child of war or of that's not everybody that's mixed race is a child of, of war and of these oppressive, you know, circumstances. Mm-hmm. And so I think it's really important that we highlight pe- that people like my parents, you know, I, you know, did not meet in Cambodia where my dad brought back a Cambodian bride. Right. right? My dad is never in the military. He's not like that. He hates that stuff. I'm so sick of getting asked if my father was in the military and is that why I'm, I was born? Like, I'm sick of getting asked that question. Right. Um, and th- so that's my family's experiences that all my yeah. all my Japanese aunts and grandma and everything were a product of those kinds of marriages. So it is interesting because we could be mixed almost exactly the same way, but the circumstances be different and our exactly. accents be different. And yet we're just looking for tribe in any way, shape or form. And so sometimes we put our thing on the other mixed people that we're surrounded around. Which is why I think mixed race studies is something that I'm excited to see continuing to grow because we all need to share our stories in whatever, you know, ways those, those uh, stories have panned out in our lives. Like we've had no control over those stories, right? But we can still come together, even though our stories are different on this kind of idea that we've all been misinterpreted based on what we look like and right. it's such a strange you know like it's it's it, it's such a strange experience but I think you know mixed folks and uh, folks of color that may or may not be mixed can definitely relate about being judged based on what you look like right so did you choose to go the academic route through perform, oh, you were already a performer and you already had access to that, but did you decide to go down the academic path as another way of connecting to culture or as a way of t- learning how to inform others? You know, my path to academia was very, very long and um, convoluted. Like I straight up leaving high school was like, I wanna be a sports medicine doctor. I wanted to be a physician. I had all these dreams. And then I got to college and, you know, it hit me that I wasn't actually as well prepared to be in that cutthroat institution in that cutthroat major. Mm. um, Like I thought I would be because Mm. I did, I worked really hard in high school and did pretty well. Um, Turns out like all of the, all of the kinds of things that hold students back definitely held me back okay. as well. Like I was not immune to any of that stuff, even though I did well in high school and like worked really hard. Right. So, mm-hmm. you know, that model minority myth thing, like totally came crashing down. Definitely was not a model minority <laughs> in college. Um, I found, I went into academia because I was so, lost. I had already, you know, worked in the industry as a dancer in this really amazing dance company called KPA Fusion. I had already been doing Cambodian classical dance my entire life since like the age of five or six, you know. Mm -hmm. And then I 
never fit in anywhere, even though I could physically do the job well, even though mm-hmm. I could dance well, even though my technique was on point, I never looked the right part for anything. Right. So I realized that having a career as a dancer and like fulfilling some sort of dream of doing performance um, also was plus the med school stuff that wasn't going to work out. Like none mm-hmm. of it was working out. So I, um, you know, I was already at UCLA and I was finishing my degree, which I had taken some time off in between. And then I had gone back to school. So I was a little bit older and I built relationships with some professors that I did well in their classes. And I kind of liked them. They were super nice. And, you know, uh, one of my professors, um, Tu Hong Nguyen Vo, who's at UCLA in the Asian American Studies Department, she and I talked because I didn't know what I wanted to do with my life. Mm-hmm. And she, you know, advised me to check out the Asian American Studies Department's master's program. Mm. And she really encouraged like my creative work. And also she encouraged uh, me telling my family story. which I had never, ever been encouraged to do any of those things before. So I kind of went into academia as like a way of trying to figure out what I wanted Mm -hmm. to do next, Mm. you know, which I think is what a lot of people did. And I got so lucky that everything that I had been doing in my life up until that point lined up and that this particular program not only allowed me to engage in scholarship in a new way, all, but it also valued my live experience and it valued the creative work that I'd been doing professionally up until then. And so I didn't enter academia thinking that I was going to care about teaching or that, or anything like that, mm-hmm. you know? Um, but it was after going through that master's program, probably like within my first year, I was already just like, I love this this is so challenging but the things that we're learning are blowing my mind Mm. you know the things that we learn in ethnic studies about our histories and about oppression and about power and how all that functions you know Mm -hmm. like I I knew that I needed to figure out ways to continue talking about these topics right so that's why I'm still here and that and when I ended up um, finishing my undergrad major in was Southeast Asian studies I feel like I got about 10 minutes of lecture on Cambodia and my major was Southeast Asian studies. So that was when I knew I needed to at least get my family story out there. And I needed to study more about this field, about this country and about um, Cambodian Americans. Like I never saw myself represented in academia. And I really believed at the time that if, I could get us represented a little bit in academia, lots of change could happen from there. Right. Um, and, and I still, I still do believe that, but I didn't set out. You're going to have an impact. Like someone's going to see you and go, Oh, we can do that. Like we can do this. I mean, I think that's been the thing for me is growing up watching, you know, in my wildest dreams, hoping to see like a black, white Japanese kid or family or something like that on TV. Like even now I'm not holding my breath waiting for that unless I create it. Right. But, Mm -hmm. um, but seeing any kind of mixedness usually helped, you know, like if it was a black and white biracial fam kid and the family has interracial parents and stuff like that, I would be like, Oh, 
there I am kind of, you know, like those <laughs> yeah. types of things make a difference. And then it, if you actually put that into places like professors or uh, singers or performers and things like that, and someone says, you know, oh, th- all they did was do it. I could yeah. do this too. Like who was the first mixed race person you ever saw on TV? Where that, where I could, like, that you remember that I and remember. you could, and that you could be like, that's a mixed race person. You know what? Like I don't know that I've ever been able to ask that question. I, I can tell you when I felt yeah. presented, um, or where I thought I was finding it was like the first. Uh, oh, you know, I do know. Um, it was, <laughs> God, it was the Jeffersons, and it wasn't because of the kid. It was because <laughs> the interracial couple, because mm. the, the you know Lenny Kravitz's mom um, was on the show, and she had a white husband, and. Um, George would make fun of them being interracial couple and make fun of the white uh, husband all the time. And that was like, (laughs) even though it was the reverse of the way my family was, because like my dad's black and my dad was half black, half Caucasian British. And my mom is half Japanese, half German, Irish, Appalachian people. Right. Uh, So like it was a different mix, a different version of my mix. But it was still like, oh, this must be this must happen somewhere. Like, it's not just my family, right, I think. Right, It's not um, just you. But when, but I know that, like, more so as an adult, I would, if I see a mixed kid or something on TV, even if they're meant to code as mo- as monoracial Black or monoracial Asian yeah. or something like that, which happens all the time, um, I'll be like, look at that little mixed kid, you know? And it's gotten so much, <laughs> like, my husband, who is also mixed, but did not grow up identifying as mixed because nobody told him. Mm. Now he's starting to pick up on it and because he's had 20 years of me yelling at the TV, look at that little mixed girl or, you know, <laughs> you know yeah. like, like I mean, there they are. <laughs> I'm trying to think like, you know, when, I mean, go ahead. I'm just trying to figure out like, like, I think most of it happened as an adult, like seeing um, Naomi Osaka like with her yeah. black and Japanese face. And I'm like, she's yeah. just darker than me, but we're the same. Like, yeah. That like I'm a full grown ass woman and older than these people that are popping up on TV. And yeah. I'm finally feeling represented in that way. So yeah, I think it I mean, I get that. I I mean I definitely knew my mixedness. <laughs> if that's a word. I I knew my mixedness from, you know, a very, very young age because there was no Cambodian mom that was not about to point out how you know, light I was or how I didn't look Cambodian. And sometimes it was for like problematic, competitive, whatever reasons. Right. But then I look on TV and I see other like mixed white Asian uh, actors playing like white actors. And Mm -hmm. I'm so confused. Like I remember. What am I supposed to be? Yeah. Remember Kristen Crook from like uh, from Smallville. Oh, yes, yes, yeah. Okay, I was trying so to So I out. looked at her, and I was like, she's Hapa. Like, she's mixed, yeah. 100%. right? 100%. But she's playing, like, a white girl. <laughs> the most frustrating part of that is seeing two white parents pop up, and you're like, well, wait, is she adopted? Can we address this? <laughs> right, and it never gets addressed. Because right. she was white passing enough, you know, but... For me, knowing that the actress was definitely mixed meant that I could someday perform roles. 
Um, cause even when I was in, even when I was in, um, middle school and we were doing plays and stuff, I always thought that it was either my chubbiness or my mixedness that didn't land me starring roles okay. in plays and stuff, because I was often called back for multiple parts and I'd hear from judges that probably shouldn't have been talking to me about this, that they thought that that my that they, they tried to fight for me in the casting because they felt that I was the perfect, you know, person for that part. Um but, you know, politics aside, it, it you know, cuz there was probably some stuff about like can your parents come help and I've, you know, two parents at work. Um or, or can they pay for things and I was like, no. <laughs> mm-hmm. But, you know, politics aside, it made it always because I never got cast in leading roles I always was left to wonder if it was like my race or if it was because I was chubby Mm. you know so I either thought I was fat and I was sad and messed up because of that or I thought I was like this weird abject mixed race nobody could cast me in anything like person and it was like super traumatic right And so that's where I think a lot of the trauma is for mixed race folks is this need by American society and by the world generally to categorize people, mm-hmm. you know, racially in, in the very like few categories that um, we have <laughs> right. and, and this failure to, to account for and care about mixed stories and consider and this failure to consider those stories like normal and not part of like you know this Mm -hmm. really messed up militarized experience right can I ask for uh for the Cambodian side um you know how uh, most cultures around the world have a view of a version of colorism for their for their yep. particular groups, right? Um, yep. For for Japan, it's they do skin whiteners and everything as well, and all that kind of stuff, and they they do shun the darker skinned Japanese. Um, but Southeast Asians do tend to be darker skin. Is there the same type of thing? A dynamic of value for the lighter skin Cambodian? Yeah, you know, I think um, it, the the question's a, very complicated, actually, in the yeah. Cambodian community because of what happened in the Cambodian genocide. So, mm-hmm. you know, people that were lighter skinned were often affluent or mm-hmm. didn't have to work in the fields or were mixed Chinese or were ethnically Chinese, culturally Cambodian, right? Mm-hmm. And all of those kinds of people were targeted in the genocide. So we don't necessarily in the diaspora see this like um, preference for light skinned, but also while I say that we don't necessarily see that, I have definitely seen it in my personal experience. Like I know my aunt used to use bleaching cream Mm -hmm. for her skin And, like, you know, lighter-skinned Cambodians are often kind of cast, you know, in dance pieces. Like, if you see, if you go on YouTube and look up Cambodian classical dance, a lot of the dancers you see are light-skinned or fair, Mm -hmm. you know. Um, And and the idea is is the same in the Cambodian community is if you're darker-skinned, you know, 
you must be of a lower socioeconomic class. Um, and you know, that I've, that's definitely something to, to consider in, in the, in the, to be similar in the Cambodian American diaspora. And then how does that translate to the Cambodian mixed folks, especially any of those that were, you know, it's the Cambodian mixed race population is few. It's very few. Okay. And, but it's growing. So there's a lot, like I was the only mixed race dancer until my sister joined the dance group. And then my cousins who are also mixed race, mm-hmm. um, their mom is Cambodian, not related to my mom. We're related on our white side. Oh, okay. Um, so we were like the first like mixed uh, half white, half Cambodian kids Okay. Um, and then there, like my friend, another friend of mine, my friend Monica, she's half Filipino, half Cambodian, um, you know, but she presents Asian. So it's, it's a slightly different experience, but still totally like, I'm super curious about her experiences, actually. Um, bring her on. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> she's awesome. But yeah, like, I think that there aren't a ton of us. And there's only a handful that are my age that I know about. Um, Mm. And two of them are artists and they're really incredible artists, which is exciting. Mm -hmm. Um, But those are the only one, those are the only mixed race people that I know that are around my age. I guess I always kind of thought, because I did grow, I mean, grow up in a Long Beach, there was Cambodian community, um, a lot of various South Asian communities, Southeast Asian communities, but the ones that were mixed tended to be like mixed back home, like French colonization mixed, yeah. you know, both for Cambodians and for Vietnamese and, and things like that. Um, so I was, I guess I was always kind of picturing that there was just this cast of mixed French Cambodian folks and like trying to figure out how the, how the Cambodian world viewed them. But they would be being viewed under colonization anyway. So, mm-hmm. well, you know, if we're being viewed in any way, I'm, I, I look, I haven't met a ton of other mixed race people. <laughs> you know what I mean? And that's I mean, it's the, the story of most of people. There's a, yeah, there's not a community for it. Like, I had my sister, and we don't really talk about this stuff that much. But, Same way, brother. um, yeah, but we, uh. We definitely were the only people we knew that were mixed Cambodian. Mm. And, you know, like for us, it was, for me at least, it was a big, it's a big point of um, pride. Like, I feel like it's a privilege to be Cambodian because I know my mom's history and I know her, like a lot of her stories Mm. um, about what she went through and so you know it's it's a an honor that not only did she survive this really horrendous period um in Cambodian history but she came and was able to work really hard to make something of herself and then to choose to build a family um you know so my experience has been very privileged in that she shared those stories with me and that she is who she is Mm -hmm. um and so I've been very lucky that being said um we don't we don't get to interact with the Cambodian 
uh, mixed race community because there really isn't one. Mm. <laughs> like we're not a community. <laughs> I mean, I think that is that's a fair assessment of almost every mixed community. I I mean, I grew up knowing a lot of mixed people because almost everybody in my family was mixed, and then we also were a military family, so yeah. we were always surrounded by other mixed folks from all over the place and we just all kind of like well we're all kind of the same brown you know and we could be asian we could be black we could be latinx like it just we just didn't know but we ran around each other you know so i i did grow up with a pretty rich mixed experience and growing up and doing this show and realizing how so many mixed race people actually grow up in isolation like i managed to grow up with mixed folks and be isolated because we weren't allowed to talk about this kind of stuff. Mm. And now I'm meeting all kinds of people who grew up being sort of the one or only or just them and their sibling and don't even get to talk about it. And like you said just a few minutes ago, I have now heard this same sentence three times this week. I think it's something to the effect of, I think you're the first mixed person I've ever had a conversation with, or <laughs> I don't get to talk with that many mixed people. I'm not sure that I've met one. You know, like some, yeah. something like that seems to yeah. be really common. And I, I talk to a lot of mixed people, but mixed Cambodian is a special brand that's right. been very few and far between. You know, being in academia and, and being in ethnic studies, I've definitely met some incredible scholars that are working on these issues of multiraciality. Mm-hmm. And it's so exciting to see what they're doing for their own communities and for their own stories. And so I hope to just be able to kind of do the same through my research and through my creative work for mixed Cambodian Americans. Cause yeah. I know that there's a ton of mixed kids out there right now that are doing the same things that I did when I was their age, you know, doing Cambodian classical dance and feeling out of place, but feeling like they want to and need to do this kind of um, this kind of cultural production work. Right. You know, so I I appreciate the way that you say that, too, because that's I mean, I get the whole thing of like, why are mixed people so militant, which is how I end up with the a, the name of my show and things like that. And for me, growing up in the black community and presenting as a sort of ambiguous Asian Latinx looking person, but being black as hell. I had to be militant. I had to be yeah. more militant than the darkest, dark skinned person because I had to validate my blackness a lot yeah. or whether or not it was forced on me or whether or not I felt like I had to probably both of those things are at play at the same time but um you know I become more of a militant person because I feel like whether it's overperforming or whatever I'm going to show you my blackness so that you don't have to ask me at all what I am you know and it was easier for me for to be accepted as black than it was for me to be accepted as mixed when I was growing up because I grew up around black people. So you don't want to be the weird one. You right. know, I think so I think your community and what you've grown up around and who you've grown up around plays a lot in how you identify with, you know, whatever side or with 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 whatever ethnic group um that you're mixed with, you know, uh, I, I grew up in a Cambodian American community. So, you know, I do identify Cambodian American, but I went to high school in a place where everyone was, there's like, there's a lot of different, um, ethnic groups. There are like Croatian folks, Italian folks, Mm, you know, who I kind of classify them as white folks. 
And then there were like rich white folks. And then there were some um, black folks. There were some, there was a lot of like Latinx folks at my school. Mm -hmm. And I was one of the like seven Asian people. (laughs) (laughs) Right. (laughs) You know, and it was kind of funny because like we all joined the Mabuhai Club, which was like the Filipino culture club. <laughs> but get it, it was like you get it. <laughs> the president of Mabuhai Club were were my friends, you know, and my cousins. So like my cousins that were Cambodian, they were president of Mabu Mabuhai Club at San Pedro High School before I went there. And then my friends that were running it when I got there, they're half black, half Japanese. Oh, they're like me. I don't know. Yes. And, and they were in charge and of they're the out there. <laughs> yeah. Right. Oh, exactly. <laughs> so while we didn't have, it was more of like an Asian hangout club right, where we could right. all just be Asian, but and not feel like judged and we could all talk about you know quote unquote the weird fruit that we all like and the food things that we all liked (laughs) we're looking at white people like what do you mean you don't eat rice for breakfast lunch and dinner like (laughs) exactly you should eat it (laughs) like you fools do you not know it's freaking good soy sauce man and you gotta get the right kind of soy sauce too yeah don't do it (laughs) sure um that's funny so i know we got to wrap up because you got to get back to um back to the the protests and everything like that but i before we go and i'm i need to have you back so just plan on that already Um, sounds good before we go what i do like to do is ask all of my guests because sometimes we do talk about a lot about trauma or we talk about isolation and misunderstanding and i'd like to end on a positive note what do you enjoy the most or love the most about being a multiracial person Mm, there's so many things that I enjoy about being mixed but I think one of the biggest things that I get to enjoy is being able to share a really unique experience with people that can connect cross-culturally right so like you don't have to be mixed Cambodian to know what I'm talking about when I talk about um you know my experiences growing up I think that as mixed people we all can connect with this idea of you know having been misinterpreted based on what we look like like I said earlier um but you know more than that I feel so lucky to be Cambodian American and and mixed race Cambodian American at that um because I'm connected with so many different legacies of of peoples and so many different kinds of stories and histories on my Cambodian side I'm connected with my mother and her family and her you know her story through the Cambodian genocide but then on my dad's side I'm connected with my really wonderful white grandparents who were both um educators in Torrance and and the LA like San Pedro school district. They were both elementary school teachers. You know, they were civil rights activists. My grandpa used to joke about um, them having, you know, the FBI having a file on him because (laughs) he was so vocal about um, racial injustice. Mm. And, you know, he was a real estate agent for a while. And he, I think the story is that he got his license revoked because he sold a house to a black family (gasps) in a white neighborhood. 
And he got his license revoked. Yeah, there was some kind of uprising. And I can't remember the exact story right now, but that's that's what, you know, those are the kinds of histories that I get to be attached to. Right. So I'm I'm so lucky that on both sides, you know, while there is crappy stuff on both sides, right? Sure. I have so many different histories that I can attach myself to mm. um, and, and feel more connected to the world. Um, and I think my, my mixedness has given me this really amazing power of empathy and being able to connect yes. with people, you know? Yes. So yeah, I think, I think being mixed is a, a huge blessing. I agree. I'm so glad you said the bit about empathy because I I have been trying to express this to people and I think mixed people get it. And I'm not trying to say we're more empathetic, but I know because we can because we are like genetically predisposed to code switching because we have different cultures and things like that. And because we have to see people different, you know, we have to see different people in our own household we're trained throughout our lives to be more open yeah. and more thoughtful. I, I, I mean, I'm thinking for, for me, I'll say it for <laughs> me, uh, but I appreciate hearing that from you. Uh, thank you so much for being on the show. And I'm really excited that Morgan uh, joined us together on this planet. Yes, now. She's the best. Um, I wish you all the positive things and vibes that I can for the, the continuing um, strike for the UC wide solidarity the cola solidarity and uh before we get out of here though why don't you tell people how they can fight because we didn't even get into your music which people <laughs> heard at the top of the show and they're going to hear on the way out but we'll talk about that in a part two or something um <laughs> sounds tell good everybody how to find you and, and everything sure so you guys can find me on all of social media at tiffany lytle music t-i-f-f-a-n-y-l-y-t-l-e music and you can find me at tiffanylidlemusic.com. And I uh, have an EP out called Cambodian Child that you guys can listen to on iTunes, Spotify, and anywhere where you can stream music. Cool. Awesome. Again, thank you so much. And yeah. come back. Sounds good. Thank you so much for having me, Charmaine. It was thank a blast. Thank you, Tiffany. Yeah. Have a good one. You too. Sing my 
my songs now Don't forget that I am the one Who has made barriers come down As I sing at my temple again We don't really know how to fight But we do know how to live and die We, we can't control our minds We don't really know how to fight, but we do.
Militantly Mix is a main hustle media podcast, produced and hosted by me, Charmaine Fury. Music is by David Bogan, the one. You can follow us on social media on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Militantly Mixed. If you'd like to become a sponsor of Militantly Mixed, please go to patreon.com slash militantlymixed for monthly sponsorship or paypal.me slash militantlymixed for a one-time only donation. And if you like what you hear on Militantly Mixed, please subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And don't forget to be your mixed-ass self. Main Hustle Media. Turn your side hustle into your main hustle.